Good morning. It is such a privilege to be here today and to get to catch up with some familiar faces that I haven't seen for quite some time. Um, as Pastor PJ said, I'm married to this handsome guy, Dave, in the front. We've been married coming up 22 years, and we have four kids who range from seven through to 28. So in all reality, that is my main job is trying to not stuff up raising them, um, and then I'm an itinerant ministry in this season, and I co-lead a ministry called the Devoted Collective, which is all about creating resources and opportunities for women to go deep with God so that they can experience the fullness of all that He intends for them. So that's a, you know, a little snapshot, but our youngest, who is seven, is obsessed with counting down. So from the moment it's his birthday, the very next day, he's like, sorry, how many days until August 9th? And he begins to count down until his next birthday. His sister's birthday follows not too long after in October, so he also the next day begins the countdown to when is the next birthday in our house. Actually, you're before her, but he doesn't count down to you. I don't know why he doesn't. And then when her birthday's over on October 24th, he begins to count down to Christmas. We don't get to wait until the 1st of December. Suri is consulted regularly from October 24th onwards while the birthday countdown is still happening as well. The thing is, when we are waiting for a sure thing, that wait is filled with expectation and anticipation. Lucas knows that no matter what, on December 25th, it will be Christmas. On August 9th, it will be his birthday. But when we're waiting for something that doesn't have an assigned date, when we're waiting for something that we don't know when or even if it will be realized, that kind of waiting can feel really different. It might start off with hope and expectation, but the longer that wait goes on, the more the uncertainty and the doubt grows inside of us, and we can get really weary in the waiting. We can lose our hope. We can lose our confident expectation in the goodness of God, and sometimes people even lose their faith when they don't see the things that they carry in their heart, when they don't see the things that God has spoken to them realized. And sometimes waiting for Christmas adds to that sense of weariness. There is something about the end of a year that causes us to take stock. And if we are not where we thought we would be, where we hoped we would be, we would prayed we would be at the end of a year, it can just feel like another layer of disappointment. And I've spoken to so many people in the last couple of months, and I say, how are you? Just tired, so tired, bone-weary. You know, there's an old carol, O Holy Night, and the carolist writes, O Holy Night, the stars are shining brightly. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And I think there is this sense collectively as we watch what is unfolding around the world where we feel weary, 
where we feel that pining that this is not how it was meant to be. And the carolus went on to say, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. As I was wrestling through some of my own feelings of weariness about Christmas and the end of a year and some things having not played out as I had hoped that they would, I really felt this conviction from the Holy Spirit that, Amy, Christmas was not meant to add to your weariness. It is meant to be the antidote to your weariness. It is meant to be the reason that you feel again that thrill of hope. It is meant to be the reason that a weary world rejoices. And so this morning, I want to take us back in time to a weary world and some reasons that they found to have joy as God began to dawn this new day that the carolist sings of. Our story begins back in Malachi, which is the very last book of the Bible. And Malachi was writing to a people who had just come back from exile, and they were rebuilding their lives. They were literally rebuilding their city, their walls, their temple. They'd come back to ruins. And it was a hard and heavy season. And Malachi speaks these words to them. He says, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and you will leap like calves released from the stall. Have you ever seen calves frolicking around? It's joyful, it's free, there's a sense of celebration. And this picture is prophesied that they're going to be released from captivity and they're basically going to dance and be filled with joy and healing is coming for them because a new day is dawning. And do you know what follows? 400 years of silence. There are no recorded angelic visitations, no prophets assigned to come and speak to them. There's just total silence in these 400 years. And I don't know about you, but that sounds to me more like the sun is setting rather than the sun is rising. And as those days turned into weeks, turned into months, turned into decade after decade after decade of waiting for this prophesied day that would bring their healing and would bring their freedom and would bring their joy, I have no doubt that they grew weary. Because here they had returned to their homeland, and now some 400 years later, they find themselves still controlled by an enemy, under occupation by the Romans, external control. But then within themselves as a people, in this 400 years of silence, they've decided, the religious leaders, to become God's voice and to make up all these things that God never said they had to do. And the burden of worship is heavy and tiresome and adding to the weariness that this people feels. But, and with God there is always a but, the new day that had been prophesied, not just 400 years ago, but thousands of years ago, was finally about to happen. 
And if you have your Bible or you're a Bible app person, I want to encourage you to open to Luke chapter 1. And we are going to just read the first four verses together. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who, were from, the, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, back in the ancient world, if a book started with a prologue, the writer was telling you this is a serious work. This is something that you can rely on. It's important. Sit up, pay attention. None of the other Gospels have a prologue like Luke does. So in choosing to start his book in this way, he was sending an intentional message to his readers This is a serious historical book that you can be sure of. All of Luke is written in what was called common Greek, except for these four verses. It's in literary classical Greek, and it's actually one carefully crafted sentence. And it all has been done to serve the purpose that he states in verse 4 so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. The message paraphrase says, so that you might know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of all that we believe. You know, as we approach Christmas, this is so important because Santa might combine folklore and fantasy, but Jesus, he is all truth. And Luke wants us to know that as we begin to hear about prophecies being realized and angels popping up here, there, and everywhere, and barren women conceiving and virgins conceiving, as he goes on to share the miracles that Jesus will perform and to speak of the resurrection, he wants us to know that this is no myth, that these things happened and we can stake our lives on them. He wants us to know that the miraculous, the breaking in of the kingdom of God is the norm when God is with us. And so I want to encourage you as we talk about finding joy in the waiting, finding joy in the weariness, to raise the level of your expectation because God is still with us. And the new and glorious day that was dawning, that had been prophesied, that the carolist sings of, we're living in it. So as you bring your own places of waiting to this message this morning, I want to believe that you will have renewed expectation that God is up to something good in your life. All right, so the very first, we've got three angelic visitations, three reasons to be joyful today. And the first one happens with a couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now they are a priestly couple. Zechariah is a priest and Elizabeth is the daughter of priests. And we are told that God himself said this couple were righteous and that they were blameless in following after him. I don't know about you, but I reckon they've got to be pretty up there if God himself is, you know, giving them the tick. But it's really important that God establishes this because their faithfulness has not made them exempt from suffering. This couple knew what it was like to feel like God was silent, 
to wait and to not have your prayers answered. Luke tells us that they were advanced in years, which is his polite way of saying they are old and they are barren. And in that day and age, that was such a shameful thing. And the people would have whispered, what did they do wrong? What sin, what skeleton is hiding in their closet that they haven't been able to conceive a child? And God from the outset is saying, "Uh uh-uh, that is not what is happening here. This couple is righteous in my sight. And so the point at which we meet them is Zechariah has been chosen by Lot, which might seem random, but as we are going to see, was divinely orchestrated. It was his turn to offer the incense, which represented the prayers of the people on the altar in the temple. You have to understand this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's like the pinnacle of his priestly career. And so he goes into the temple, and as he goes in, and as the fragrance of the incense rises, representing the prayers of the people, the people are literally outside the temple, raising their voices in prayer. What are they praying for? Deliverance. They are praying, asking God, would you send the Messiah? Would you come? Would you set us free? And at that moment, we read in verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, which means God has remembered Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, and her name means oath of God. So from the very beginning of their lives, this couple have had spoken over them, God will be faithful to his word. God will remember what he has spoken. God will keep his promise. Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. The angel then goes on to basically say why John is going to be the fulfillment of much of what is prophesied in the last chapter of Malachi, why he will be the forerunner to the one who is the son of righteousness that will rise and bring healing in his wings. And after he said all of this to Zechariah, Zechariah is a little bit like, oh, I don't know, mate. I mean, how can I be sure? And we might give him, you know, we might diss him a bit for that. But when you have waited for a really long time, when you've got your hopes up time after time after time only for them to be dashed again, there's a sense in which you want to guard your heart. You're not so sure if you want to believe because what if you're just going to be disappointed again? And so Zechariah very humanly says, but how can I be sure? And the angel says this, I am Gabriel. There are only three named angels in scripture. Gabriel is one of them. And he's basically saying, um, dude, you've got one of the top three. Like, what more do you need? And he says, I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good 
news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at there. If you circle or underline in your Bible, you want to circle these words, the proper time. Your translation might say the appointed time. And this is the first reason that we get to rejoice in seasons of waiting. We get to rejoice in his proper timing. When I first read this passage through and was thinking about what can we rejoice in, I was going to tell you answered prayer, and that is awesome. I love to celebrate answered prayer, but only the person who has an answered prayer gets to rejoice in that. The difference with the proper timing is every single one of us has a reason to rejoice, whether we are walking in a season of desire fulfilled, where God has said it is the proper time for that thing to be realized and released in your life, or whether we are in a season of waiting, we still get to rejoice because we know that when that thing comes to pass, it will be the proper time, the appointed time. Scripture also calls it the set time, the fullness of time. And I'm going to tell you this, God's timing is the right timing that brings the maximum blessing. I have tried. I could give you story after story if we had time of times in my life where I have strived and tried to make things happen on my own timetable. And they have never carried the joy or the blessing that they have when I have chosen to align myself with the wisdom of God. Because I've come to realize that God doesn't just have a plan. He has a timetable. And sometimes delays are about what he needs to do and prepare in me. And sometimes it has nothing to do with me. Sometimes it's about who my life is going to become connected to and what he's needing to do in their life because he's weaving together all of our stories to write his story. And that's what happens with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They wanted a child, but God didn't just want to give them any child. The child that he had ordained for Elizabeth to carry, that child's destiny was connected to the destiny of God's own son. And so he couldn't just come at any time. He had to come at the proper time, the appointed time, the set time. And that timing didn't just bring joy to Zechariah and Elizabeth. It brought joy to a whole nation and continues to bring joy today. We get to rejoice in God's proper timing. If he has spoken it, he will not forget it. He has said that he is not a man that he should lie. And he has said that every word that he speaks that comes forth out of his mouth will accomplish what he has planned and purposed for it and will return a harvest. If God has spoken something in your life, you can trust it. He keeps his word. Let's fast forward into the next angelic visitation. And this time, it's not with an old couple, it's with a young girl called Mary. Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph. She was probably in her mid-teens. And she was from a poor family. And she lived in a town that was what we would call off the grid. Not only that, wasn't just off the grid. For the Jewish people, Nazareth was kind of looked down on. There'd been some intermingling with the Gentiles and it wasn't such a kosher town. And yet God chose her, this young girl in this unexpected town to be the mother of the Messiah, to be the mother of son 
of the Son of God himself. And you know, Mary's whole world is turned upside down and inside out in this moment. What is she going to tell Joseph? How will he possibly believe that she hasn't been mucking around behind his back? She knows that she faces ridicule or maybe even stoning. And yet she says to this angel, I am the Lord's servant, let it be. She embraces this assignment that God has given her. And we're told that she goes and visits Elizabeth, who is now well along in her pregnancy with John. And she spends the first part of her pregnancy with this older relative. And the tradition would be that the scriptures would be read over Mary and over her unborn child. And as she gets to Elizabeth's house, we read this in chapter 1, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. As Mary comes in to Elizabeth's home, the baby within her recognizes the presence of Jesus and that brings joy. Jesus is joy. And we're told in Psalm 16 that in the presence of God is not just a little bit of joy, but a fullness of joy. As Jesus approached the cross, he prayed three times that not only would we know his joy, but that it would be complete. And that word meant to be filled to the brim. As the people of God, we're not meant to just carry a little bit of joy. We're meant to carry so much joy that it's brimming over. We can't contain it. And you know what? Joy is not just for when life feels good because joy is something far beyond happiness. Joy is about the presence of God. Joy is about who God is. And Nehemiah said to a people in mourning, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we don't have to strive to go and find the presence of God. The presence of God is within us. We carry his presence wherever we go, which means no matter how long we wait, no matter how deep and how dark the valley, his presence is there with us and his joy is there with us. And we should be so brimming with it that when we go out into our homes and our workplaces and our schools and our communities, that like that child, John leapt because he recognized the presence of Jesus, the joy that we carry should awaken something in the people around us. The joy of the Lord is our strength, not in a theoretical, you have to whitewash your pain, you have to pretend everything's okay and put on a smile, a deep abiding joy that comes from living in the very presence of God. I shared in the first service, we have been walking through probably one of our most painful valleys for the last two and a half years. We're kind of on the upward ascent at this point in time. But one of our children has had a really traumatic mental health journey. But do you know how real the presence of God has been? Do you know how tangible his joy has been in some of the most gut-wrenching moments? 
He has been there bringing strength, releasing hope, building expectation, bringing healing in the midst of some of the worst things that I've had to walk through as a mother. The joy of the Lord is your strength and it's not theory. Jesus wants to be tangible to you this morning so that you can tangibly release his joy to a world who is so weary this Christmas. And as Mary marvels at what God is doing in her life, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Jesus is our Savior. He is our deliverer. And we so often reduce salvation just to a moment in time and where we are going to spend eternity. But friend, it is so much more than that. As we've already sung this morning, Jesus came to break every chain. But he starts on the inside. In Matthew's account of the Christmas story, he says he's going to be called Jesus because he will save the people and set them free from what? Not the Romans, not the external circumstances that they thought were the key to walking in freedom and joy, but from their sin, from the things inside that bound them and kept them from the wholeness that God intended them to walk in and know. And as we come to this third and final angelic visitation in Luke's account, it's to the shepherds. And I want you to have this in mind as we read through it. We think shepherds, awesome, great profession. But they were at the lower end of the social scale back in their day. We're told in Genesis that the Egyptians actually considered it a detestable thing to be a shepherd. For the Jewish people, it meant that they were often ceremonially unclean because they would come into contact with parasites and carcasses. And that meant that not only could they not enter the temple freely, they also couldn't freely associate with people until they had gone through a cleansing ceremony. But their work meant they couldn't just go off for the ceremony whenever they wanted. They had responsibilities to tend to the sheep. And so they were often on the outskirts of town and on the outskirts of community. And yet they are the very first people group that God chooses to announce the birth, the dawning of this new day to. So we're in chapter two now in verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for, I want you to circle this word, all people. Not just the Zacharias and Elizabeths who have been faithful in season and out of season. Not just the Virgin Marys who say, Let it be, Lord but the people who feel like something in their life keeps them distant and on the outskirts of community and on the outskirts of God's presence. God says it's good news for you too. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor 
rests. The third and the final reason that we get to rejoice, whether we are waiting or in a season of desire fulfilled, is we get to rejoice in his promised salvation. And as I said, salvation is so much more than you just becoming a child of God. God then wants to take you on a whole journey of unpacking and outworking in your life what it looks like to live as a fully redeemed child of God who is a co-heir with Christ. He wants to break every chain. He wants to shift the things inside that still keep you bound because you can be saved and you can still have an area that is a stronghold of the enemy. But David said, make God your stronghold. Make Him the impenetrable place of your heart and your life. And as you learn to do that, as you learn to let God be your deliverer, your rescuer, the one that you set your hope upon, He brings a freedom from the inside that then enables you to bring a freedom to the outside. A weary world needs to rejoice. And Jesus has given us the mission of co-laboring with Him. And this Christmas, He doesn't want us to be like, oh, don't you see how busy I already am? Don't you see how stretched the budget already is? Why do I have to fit this other thing in? You don't need to fit it in, you need to let it break in.